Good evening, and welcome to the Midnight Owl. I'm your host, Tim. This podcast is proudly a part of the Not After 30 Podcast Network. You can contact the Midnight Owl on Facebook on the Not After 30 Podcast group, on Instagram, the Midnight Owl Podcast, and if you have a story to share, beardedandboard at gmail.com. This week, we are talking about major sports leagues and the superstitions and rituals of elite athletes. I wouldn't say I'm superstitious, just a little stitious. Michael Scott. Ritual is a certain behavior or action that an athlete performs with the belief that these behaviors have a specific purpose or power to influence their performance. Many athletes believe that performing a specific ritual before competition improves their performance. These rituals can range from the clothes that they wear to the foods they eat or drink, the warm-up they perform, or even the music they listen to. Superstition is generally something that is initially developed looking back on events. A superstition arises when an athlete has a particularly good or bad game. The athlete then tries to establish cause and effect by reviewing the facts of the day. They will notice things like what they ate or wore, and they'll notice anything unusual that happened that day. In high school, I was one of the captains of my football and rugby teams. I curled and rode and once tried to form a volleyball team. That team was cancelled because we were too bad at the sport to be competitive. I'm not an elite athlete. I was just fortunate enough to be in a school that had just enough people to field a team and enough room for a kid with heart to get out onto the field as a leader. We didn't have a social structure like you see in movies or TV at our school. There weren't any bullies. It wasn't jocks versus nerds. Stoners and goths didn't have epic battles for the smoking court. When we took to the field, all of us were Red Devils. Thinking back, we were out on the field wearing our jerseys with the symbol of the devil blazoned on our crest. Who were we representing? Our school? Doesn't seem likely. No one wanted to be there. Each other? Maybe. I loved it so much, even after I graduated, I went back to play for another year instead of moving on to college or university. A fact that still gives me the awkward chills to this day. If your team was playing that day, everyone on that team would show up to school and wear their jerseys. For my team, before a game when we were doing our warm-up run, we would sing Journey, Don't Stop Believing. I don't know why, it just started. We were winning and it felt like we couldn't stop. We just had to hold on to that feeling. When I rode, me and my teammate would sing Rock the Boat by the Hughes Corporation. I think I only have heard the song once, and I never bothered learning all of the lyrics. Belting out the chorus was just worth a laugh on the way to a a. 6am practice. In my first football season, there was a grade 11, 
His name was Woodley, and he had a magic shirt. It's amazing as a grade 9 looking at someone who's in grade 11 or 12 as an adult, but that's the way it felt. Everyone seemed so much larger and scarier than I could muster. This shirt was worn in practices and games for four years. It had about three layers of yellow sweat stains. I don't mean there was three large yellow stains. I mean that somehow this shirt was yellowed on yellow on yellow. Ancient folktales said it had began its life as a white shirt with sleeves. I don't accept this truth. That wasn't the ratty cloth I saw before me, but rather this supernatural tank top. It exuded power and odor. Mostly power, though. For me, it wasn't a talisman meant for winning. It symbolized protection. That as long as Woodley was wearing that shirt under his jersey next to me on the line, I wouldn't get seriously hurt. After his final football season, the shirt was taken to an empty field where it was burned in a large pallet fire. A proper burial for the end of an era. Spring was rugby season, and this is where we excelled. We had the supernatural on our side. That cosmic force was my friend John's nose. When it bled, it meant we were going to win. It was that simple and that true. He didn't even need to be taken down in a hard tackle. John's nose just knew when it was meant to bleed. When John went to the doctor to have some of the blood vessels in it cauterized so that he could go a practice, a game, a week without bleeding on himself, it was seen as a betrayal to the team. Luckily, Western medicine can't defeat the old gods, and if we were meant to win, his nose would bleed. And on the very rare days that it didn't, there were dark and terrible whispers behind John's back. How mad do you figure John be if someone were to punch him? J- just enough to get things going. Every major league has their own rituals and superstitions. I want to go through them individually, starting with baseball. During my research, I was going through site after site and couldn't find anything on why baseball players seemingly scratch their junk all the time. Apparently, that's just a gnarly tradition, carried on and accepted for no reason. But another nasty habit is spinning. Spinning is considered fine, but not covering it up with dirt can bring on terrible luck or bad juju. It's believed that it can cause a curse, that your bat will break, a glove will just drop the ball, or possibly harm the player with a freak accident causing an injury. The rally cap. When your team is behind going into the seventh inning, a surefire way to get your team back on a hot streak is to put on the rally cap, which means you flip your hat inside out and put it back on your head. It's probably heartwarming to look up into the stadium of thousands and see all your fans still believing in a win, enough to symbolize it with serious looks and goofy hats. The first reported instance of the inside-out hat was the Detroit Tigers in the 1940s. Apparently they did it for no reason. It was popularized in the late 70s by the Texas Rangers, who would flip their lids in a rallying cry during comeback wins. 
No-Hitter A no-hitter is one of the most rare events to happen during a professional baseball game. It's when a pitcher does not allow for a single hit during the course of a game. These men have trained for their sport their entire lives, each a master of their craft working in opposition to the other. If you're in the stadium when something like this is happening, remember, the mere mention of a potential no-hitter is enough to end it. Even saying the words can cause it to cease. Managers and teammates will actively avoid their pitcher, refusing to talk to them during a no-hitter. Even the announcers being paid to comment on the game will do their best to avoid saying the words, no-hitter. We think of good luck as being some sort of oversight, one that if noticed will be corrected. So sometimes it's best to not really think about it. Jason Giambi In his prime, he was a pitcher's worst nightmare. But even the best get into slumps. To break out of it, he had a simple solution. Wearing a golden thong on game day. Yes, that means under his uniform and out onto the field. His underwear was so highly regarded that teammates would borrow them to help break their slumps. Steve Finley Steve had a pouch of healing minerals. He said that he carried them so that he could have a layer of protection against the many harmful external energies that attack our bodies on a daily basis. Justin Verlander Before every game, Justin would eat three Crunch Taco Supremes, no tomato, a cheesy gordita crunch, and a Mexican pizza, no tomatoes, for dinner. This is the only instance I've found of an athlete actively poisoning themselves to induce luck. The Curse of the Bambino In 1918, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series. The backbone of the team was Babe Ruth. The following year was abysmal. The Sox sold Babe to their rivals, the New York Yankees. The Yankees would go on to become one of the most dominant teams for the next several decades, while the Sox struggled to even make it to the championship game. 86 years passed before the curse was broken in 2004, nearly a century of punishment for trading away a fan favorite. The Curse of the Billy Goat It was 1946 and William Sanis just wanted to watch his favorite team, the Chicago Cubs, play with his pet goat Murphy. Legend has it that Sanis was at Game 7 of the World Series at Wrigley Field with Murphy the billy goat. They took their seats and were enjoying the day. During the course of the game, Sanis was asked to take his smelly goat and leave. Sanis was enraged. He wrote a letter to the owner of the Cubs, Philip K. Wrigley, which read, You are going to lose the World Series, and you are never going to win another World Series again. You are never going to win a World Series again because you insulted my goat. Many attempts were made to lift the curse over the next 70 years. Before his death, William Sanis attempted to lift the curse in 1970. Sam Sanis, his nephew, went to multiple games with a goat. Sam was invited opening day of 1984 and 1989 seasons with a goat each year. They won their division but failed to make it to the World Series. The Cubs used this as a slump buster in 94, and to help win a wild card tiebreaker game in 98. In 2003, the year of the goat, a clever group of Cubs fans headed to Houston with a billy goat named Virgil Homer 
and an idea. They attempted to gain entry into Minute Maid Park, home of their rivals, the Astros. They were, of course, denied entrance. When they were denied, they unfurled a hidden scroll that proclaimed that they were reversing the curse. They won their division that year. And like so many years before, as the club and Chicago fans rejoiced, they might have finally beat the curse. Disaster struck. They were within five outs of playing in the World Series. Then the Steve Bartman incident occurred. A diehard Cubs fan, Steve Bartman, saw a foul ball coming towards his front row seat and reached out and tried to grab it. Moises Alou, a Cubs outfielder, was right underneath it. It bounced awkwardly away from both. The umpire said it broke the plane into the stands and no interference occurred. It is seen as the snowflake that started the avalanche. They lost the game 8-0 and the following two games. Initially enraged, the fans of the Cubs chanted swear words at him, throwing debris and beers on him as he was escorted out of the stadium. Moises Alou once admitted to the media that he peed on his hands to help with calluses. Maybe if his hands had more texture, he could have had enough friction to hold on to the ball. The Illinois governor suggested Bartman might want to join the witness protection program. The Florida governor offered him asylum. Eventually, this incident would come to be viewed as just another part of the curse. The club absolved Steve Bartman of any blame. Most of the players went out of their way to forgive Bartman. The fans of the Florida Marlins were grateful and sent Bartman gifts, which he donated to the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. Bartman lived out of the spotlight for years, being offered six-figure endorsement deals for Super Bowl commercials or public appearances. They attempted to undo the Bartman curse at a local Chicago restaurant when they electrocuted the baseball from that incident until it was nothing but a pile of string. I wonder who had the foresight to save the ball from that day. A superstitious groundskeeper? Other attempts at breaking the curse were made in 2007. Someone hung a butchered goat from the Harry Carey statue in front of the park. Think about that logic. In the mind of that fan, he was thinking, Oh, we've been cursed for decades, almost 61 years at this point, for being mean to a goat. Hey, I have a solution. Let's kill another goat. That'll show it, right? In 2008, a Greek Orthodox priest spread holy water in and around the Cubs' dugout. No luck. In 2009, someone hung a goat's head from the statue before the home opener. To kill something for the sake of killing something is distasteful to me. I have no problem with hunters or farmers. I understand the use of an animal for sustenance. We're the only sentient beings on this planet. We have to kind of respect and guide the animals we share the planet with. So this next fact is a beautiful twist in The Curse of the Goat. It's more in line with the true nature of breaking a curse placed for negativity. A social enterprise called Reverse the Curse was created. Reverse the Curse is dedicated to bringing innovations to poverty. They provide families with a goat so that they can have milk, cheese, and an alternative income to help them raise themselves out of poverty. Over the years, the foundation has grown to include helping the world's children with education and to fight obesity. 
In 2012, a group of five fans set out from Arizona, the spring training camp of the Cubs, to Wrigley Field. They were on foot with a goat named Wrigley. It took them over 90 days to walk. They thought if they made this pilgrimage, it might just crack the curse. It wasn't all for selfish reasons. They were also attempting to raise money for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. They made it to Wrigley Field, but their goat was denied entry. They raised over $20,000 and felt like their goat was shown enough respect. But unfortunately, it did not break the curse. In 2013, a goat head was delivered to the team's current owner. In 2015, Patrick Petrolati, Tim Brown, Takaru Kobayashi, Kevin Strahal, and Bob Stout consumed a 40-pound goat in 13 minutes and 22 seconds at a taco in a bag. Desperate times call for terrible indigestion. The curse of the goat was finally broken in 2016, 70 years after it was placed. Basketball Michael Jordan wore his University of North Carolina shorts under his uniform. To hide them, he wore longer shorts. This would go on to become the fashion for the whole NBA. It's interesting to think about, even if you don't believe in magic, you can still thank Michael Jordan's lucky shorts for ending the reign of men's short shorts in basketball. If that's not a sign of something powerful in the beyond, I don't know what is. Karan Butler would down half a bottle of Mountain Dew before tip-off, and then finish off the rest at halftime, until his coaches forced him to switch to water. Karan also loved straws. It's been noted that he would chew on up to 60 straws a day. During the early part of Karan's career, he was seen courtside chewing away, until the NBA stepped forward and put a ban on his quiet, calming ritual for safety issues. Tennis. Roger Federer has a superstitious belief in the number eight. Federer sees it as good luck. Before the start of the match, he serves eight aces. At the end of the set, he wants eight towel rubs. Federer sets up eight water bottles courtside and carries eight rackets with him. Goran Ivanovic. Ivanovic would try to never step on the lines of the court. He made sure to be the second player to stand up from his chair during a changeover. He would also repeat the events of a day if he won a match during a tournament. He'd wear the same clothes, eat at the same restaurant, even try to talk to the same people. Bjorn Borg. Bjorn Borg's superstition was about one specific event, Wimbledon. His nickname was the Iceman for his steely confidence. Borg would prepare for the tournament by growing a beard and wearing the same Fila shirt. Borg's lucky beard has become one of the most popular superstitions in sports and has been adopted by the NFL and NHL. Serena Williams Serena Williams brings her shower sandals with her to court. Tying her laces a certain way and bouncing the ball five times before her first serve, twice before her second. She will wear the same socks during a tournament run. Serena believes major losses have come from breaking the routine and causing bad luck. Soccer The Ecuadorian national soccer team 
knew they needed a bit of extra luck to win the World Cup in 2006. They used Tasmarenda Nechapi, a mystic. In the media, he was referred to as a witch doctor, shaman, priest-type fellow. Nechapi visited each of the 12 stadiums being used in the World Cup, chased away any lingering evil spirits. He would also work some magic on the pitches and goals. Ecuador did not win the World Cup, but they did place much higher than expected, beating out powerhouse teams. Barry Fry broke a long-standing curse on the team he was managing in Birmingham, England. Barry did this by urinating on all four corners of the pitch. Sergio Gocchetti, a retired Argentinian goalkeeper, is remembered for his amazing diving saves on penalty kicks. Before every single penalty kick, Sergio would relieve himself to calm his nerves. While his opponents were lining up their shot, he was peeing his pants. He said, It's my lucky charm, and I went before every shootout. I was very subtle. No one complained. Using Moises Alou's logic, at least there wouldn't be any calluses down there. NASCAR Peanut shells are considered bad luck, and according to racing lore, peanut shells were always found in the smoldering wrecks of race cars. No $50 bills. Legend says that two $50 bills were found in the shirt pocket of champion racer Joe Weatherby after he was killed in a crash in 1964. No one is sure if the legend is true, but most people steer clear just to be safe. Steer clear. That just might be my first pun on the Midnight Owl. Hockey. The lucky loony. In Canada, our $1 coin is called a loony. Because there's a loon on it. The lucky loony was a good luck charm during the 2002 Salt Lake Olympics. A loony was planted beneath the face-off dot at center ice by Trent Evans, an Edmonton native who was the ice maker for the games. After the Canadian men and women went on to win gold in their respective competitions, the loony was dug up and given to Wayne Gretzky. The superstition is carried through to subsequent tournaments, including the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver. In hockey, it's considered bad luck to touch the Prince of Wales East and the Clarence S. Campbell West Conference Championship trophies. If you do, you're dooming your team to have bad luck in the Stanley Cup final. A relatively new tradition started in 97. This tradition is adhered to by every team but the Pittsburgh Penguins. Sidney Crosby didn't touch the trophy in 2008 and lost to the Detroit Red Wings. So breaking custom and taking back his luck, he touched the trophy the next time the Penguins won their conference and opened defiance of bad mojo. This seems to be in contradiction to his character, as Sidney Crosby might be one of the most superstitious players in the league today. Crosby has to be the one to tape his stick. If someone touches it after it's taped, he has to do it again. When the Penguins are on the road, Crosby has to use the tape provided by the host team. He eats at the same restaurant in each city every time he's there. He also refuses to talk to his mother before a game. The last time he did, he suffered serious injuries. Crosby also wears one sweat-stained hat per season. Like Gretzky, he has to put his equipment on in the same order, 
always right to left. Stadium traditions. Throwing objects onto the ice in hockey, unlike any other sport, is considered good luck or part of the celebration. A hat-trick is when three goals are scored by a single player during the course of a game. Sporting fans throw their hats down to the ice level. In Detroit and Florida, the tradition has a twist. Started in 1952 during a playoff game, a Red Wings fan threw an octopus onto the ice. It represented the eight wins needed to win the Stanley Cup. After the incident, Detroit swept the playoffs. Ever since then, it's been a mess the staff has been forced to deal with. Even if you didn't want to do a physical search of each of the fans entering the arena, how the hell do you not smell a rotting octopus in someone's jacket? It's really been bothering me what kind of pre-planning would go into sneaking an octopus into the rink. Do you Ziploc bag it? Or do you just wear a jacket you hate? In Florida during the 95-96 season, the Panthers winger Melon B killed a rat in the locker room before the home opener. The team went on to the Stanley Cup Finals. Fans were so enamored with the tradition, began to build and build. Fans would throw plastic rats after any Panthers goal. The NHL intervened, made the franchise stop selling toy rats at the rink, and threatened to impose a delay-of-game penalty if it continued. This might just be meant to be a quirky good luck ritual, but thinking about it from a capitalist perspective, how great of a money-making opportunity would it be to sell people a $5 plastic rat, encourage them to throw it, collect them, and sell them back to them the next game? Goaltender Patrick Waugh believed talking to his goalposts would help keep opposing players from scoring. During the game, he would talk to the posts, thanking them when a puck was deflected, and often touching them. This spiritual relationship earned him the nickname St. Patrick. Pell Lindenberg wore the same orange t-shirt under his hockey pads throughout his entire career. It ended up getting so worn that he would have to constantly sew the shirt back together. Lindenberg would drink a Swedish beer, Prips, in between every single period. The beer also had to be served to him by a particular assistant coach, and each glass had to have two ice cubes in it. His superstition proved to be deadly, as he died in a car accident with a high alcohol level. Bruce Gardner During his rookie season with the Senators in 96, a veteran told Bruce he would only succeed if he learned to get his stick dirty. The veteran advised him he was treating his stick too well and needed to teach the wood to respect him by dunking it in the toilet. Bruce broke his slump and continued this throughout his career. Glenn Hall would pray to the hockey gods and skate circles around his net in warm-ups. Glenn also would throw up before every game. He thought he played better on an empty stomach, and many of his teammates even encouraged the unhealthy behavior. Glenn holds the record for the most consecutive games started. So maybe there's something to it. Ken Dryden would always need to make one final save before he left the ice. Dryden's many rituals were picked up by fans and staff alike. He once said, I don't tell anyone about them. I'm not proud I have them. I know I should be strong enough to decide one morning, any morning, no longer to be a prisoner to them. 
yet I seem helpless to do anything about it. Larry Robinson, a teammate, made it a point to mess with Dryden. Dryden had a rough game the night before. Robinson would simply float a shot on goal, making for an easy stop. Otherwise, Robinson may try to aggravate Dryden and make his last stop a hard one. Dryden caught on and worked to make sure that he would make his final save before Robinson came through the order. The EA and NHL Curse The Madden Curse is a famous curse in the segment that intersects gamers and sports fans. Players that are on the cover of that year's game are cursed with bad luck on and off the field. There are many examples, but famous cases of this are Dante Culpepper. The season after appearing on the cover of Madden 2002, he went 5-11 and and broke the record for the most fumbles in a season. He injured his knees and never returned to form. Michael Vick Appeared on the cover of Madden 2004, he broke his leg in a preseason game, which kept him out all season. 2004 was the same year his dogfighting ring was discovered. A broken leg really isn't enough for Vic, but there's always a chance karma will come knocking at his door. Donovan McNabb He was on the cover of Madden 2006 and incurred a sports hernia on the first game of the next season. He continued to play injured and in a great deal of pain. A torn ACL mercifully ended his year early. Sean Alexander After his MVP season in 2006, he landed the cover of Madden 2007. Alexander suffered an early season injury, which caused a sharp decline in his production. He was out of football just over a year later. Many people don't realize the curse was started as the EA-NHL curse. And where all of it begins is Eric Lindros. He appeared on the cover of NHL 99. His season came to an end with a collapsed lung during a game in Carolina. The following season, he was stripped of his captaincy and missed 10 weeks to post-concussion syndrome. During Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals, he suffered a major concussion when hit by Devils defenseman Scott Stevens in just his second game since returning from post-concussion syndrome. That would be his last game with the Flyers. Jerome Aguilna was the league's leading scorer in both goals and points in 2 3 he was on the cover. Aguilna finished the following season not even in the top 30 scorers of the league. Danny Heatley. EA's original choice for 2004 was Joe Thornton. He was charged with assaulting police officers. EA decided to go with Heatley for the cover. Four days after the release, Heatley crashed his Ferrari into a wall. Heatley suffered a broken jaw, a concussion, a bruised lung and kidney, and tore three ligaments in his right knee. Snyder, Heatley's friend and teammate, was critically injured, fell into a coma, and died six days later. EA switched the cover to Joe Sackick following the accident, but many of the copies already had been shipped and sold. The curse persisted for a few years, mostly affecting any given player's production after the lockout. After the lockout of 2007, the NHL EA curse seems to have been lifted. Many still believe in the Madden curse. 
there are many more rituals and superstitions I didn't cover in this episode. There are just too many to count, but essentially wearing certain clothing, repeating behaviors, or eating the same meals seems to be representing most of them, and repeating across all sports. It gives the athlete a feeling of control. Sports are fun because they're unpredictable. You can't know the outcome of anything from a bad bounce, an equipment malfunction, or poor call from the officials. George Glemensch, a professor of anthropology, studied superstitions in baseball. He says that the superstitions tend to be more prevalent in areas where there's a lot of uncertainty. A big test in school, a job interview, or a first date. So sports, in which every night is a new competition, are a natural home for them. Dr. Paul Van Lang described these rituals as a psychological placebo. Deep down, athletes know that certain actions don't affect the outcome of a game. But once the idea that these actions might affect their performance, once it's in their head, they may choose to do them anyway, because there's little downside. If you believe that doing a specific action or behavior will make you perform better, then you will perform better. That's the foundation of sports psychology. Sports psychology has helped many athletes. One of the techniques used is visualization or guided imagery. To recreate a successful race or game and experience the feelings they had then as though they're happening now. This recall and visualization prepare them mentally and physically for competition. Ask anyone in Canada, what's your team? And they'll know exactly what you mean. They're talking about the NHL. And who do you cheer for? Even people that rarely pay attention or watch more than two games a season will have their team. Which makes the Toronto Maple Leafs the most famous and infamous team. On the largest landmass and close to a dozen teams to pick from, Toronto's influence stretches far in the Canadian psyche. Most people will never be able to go see a game in the home rink because of its popularity and corporate seat sales. But every year their fans come out in droves with hope for a new season. This year is the year. We want a pregame match. Now let's start the parade. And every year they're disappointed and have to jump to a new bandwagon if they want to watch the playoffs. It's amazing, after all these years of jumping from bandwagon to bandwagon, that Leaf fans have any angles left. It's a lot of impact. Their decades-long slump began in tragedy. Bill Barilico of the Toronto Maple Leafs had scored the Stanley Cup winning goal in 1951 in overtime against the Montreal Canadiens. In his offseason, he went on a fishing trip with his dentist. Their plane crashed. Both passengers died. The Maple Leafs did not win another cup until 1962, 11 years after the crash. 
the same year that Barclou's body was found. His number was retired by the Maple Leafs in honor of his legacy. Bill was immortalized by the band The Tragically Hip and the song 50 Mission Cap. The Tragically Hip is a legendary Canadian band led by Gord Downey. During pregame warm-ups, 50 Mission Cap is played. Before Downey passed, when the Hip would play at the Leafs Arena, the Air Canada Centre, Bill's manner was left in place. The Maple Leafs have had the current longest Stanley Cup drought. They have not won a cup since 1967. In fact, the Leafs haven't even returned to the Stanley Cup final since 67. I wonder if someone needs to apologize to a goat. In 1976, the Leafs tried to break the curse by employing the power of the pyramid against the Philadelphia Flyers. Toronto had not won a game in the Flyers' home rink since December 19, 1971. The Flyers enlisted their secret weapon, Kate Smith. Kate Smith was their good luck talisman. When they needed an important win, they brought her out to sing God Bless America. She had been a radio, television, recording star for over five decades. The Leafs lost the first two games in Philadelphia. The coach of the Leafs, Red Kelly, needed something to energize his team and their fans. He chose pyramid power. Kelly is quoted as saying, Casey, one of Kelly's daughter, had bad headaches, so we tried whatever we could do to get the headaches to go away. Andra, his wife, had read about the power of pyramids, so we tried a small one under her pillow and her headaches disappeared. Andres suggested it for the team. Before Game 3, at the Gardens, Kelly placed five plastic pyramids under the Leafs' bench. They won 5-4. Kelly kept the pyramids in place, but it was still a secret for the following game. The Leafs were able to win 4-3 and tied the series. When the series returned to Philadelphia, they used Kate Smith's powerhouse performance to destroy Toronto 7-1. Kelly went public with his pyramid power strategy before Game 6. To a room full of reporters, he was quoted as saying, People don't know how the pyramids in Egypt were built, or even how. There has always seemed to be some strange waves given off by them. It has been proven that things shaped like pyramids can do strange and wonderful things. They can make miracles happen, and that's what we need against Philadelphia. A large plastic pyramid was hung from the ceiling of the dressing room. Kelly encouraged his players to stand or sit under it. The captain, Daryl Sittler, embraced the idea. The rest of the team bought into the power of the pyramid. Sittler said, This was a do-or-die game for us, so we used the power of the pyramid. I took the six sticks I was going to use in the game and put them under the pyramid, and I stood under the pyramid. A lot of guys on our team saw what I was doing, and soon each guy was standing under the pyramid. Tiger Williams was the last to take his turn. Williams was grateful to be on the Leaf side, remarking, Thank God I don't play for Philadelphia. I'd hate to have to sit under Kate Smith. Sittler, channeling the good aura, scored five goals in a decisive 8-5 Toronto victory. His five-goal performance equaled an NHL playoff record set by Maurice Richard in 1944. 
the Toronto coach enlisted the power of the pyramid again prior to Game 7 in Philadelphia. Kelly had a 12-foot-tall pyramid placed in the middle of the Leafs' dressing room. But the Flyers once again trotted out Kate Smith to bring good fortune to their team. It worked. While the Leafs pushed the Flyers to the limit, the dream came to an end. When asked if he truly believed in the mysterious powers of the pyramid, Red Kelly said, I was trying to do something to distract things away from Harold Bellard saying things about the club. I was trying to get the guys thinking about hockey and never mind the other stuff. Kate Smith. Pyramid power caught everyone's attention, especially after Sittler put his sticks under there and got all those points. Suddenly, everyone bought into it, and it grew bigger from there. Following that series, no one ever saw the pyramids again. Pyramid power is the theory that pyramid shapes built to the proportions of the great Sheops pyramid in Egypt which is considered the most mathematically correct structure ever created, will generate and then resonate energy. I'm going to list off all of the claims of how this energy can be utilized quickly, since I hope to do an entire episode on the pyramid in the future. Pyramid power can be used for preserving food, tenderizing meat, accelerating plant growth, turning cheap booze into a delicious vintage, curing headaches, improving your sex life, polishing tarnished metals, and keeping your razor sharp. The traditions of superstitions and ritual behavior continue and evolve because... They're based on the people that need luck, each team finding what magic works for them, the individual recreating the best possible circumstance to counter the terrible outcomes of the trickster god Murphy and his terrible laws. My nephew, for instance, has had to learn at a young age that Sugar doesn't agree with him on game day. He is so much of a team player that he wouldn't want to let down his team by not performing his best so he makes sure to follow the dietary restrictions asked of him. That is, except for when his parents stop to grab a pre-game coffee at Tim Hortons. He gets his healthy snack, an oatmeal raisin cookie. He loves it so much and the tradition is so entrenched they can't bring themselves to break the ritual and tell him. By the way, good luck in the playoffs, buddy. Uncle Tim loves you. I call this show The Midnight Owl because I'm on a continental shift. That means two weeks of every month is essentially spent in the dark. All of my friends are on the 9 to 5 grind, so by the time I get up, walk my dog, have a coffee or breakfast, it's 8 o'clock at night, and they're going to bed. I needed to find a ritual for me to actually write and record. It was kind of cool reflecting on my rituals versus all these elite athletes. Before my podcast, I have a shower, shave, I go for two cigarettes. Which I mean, why do I smoke immediately after I've cleaned up? I guess it's tradition. Why rock the boat? Don't rock the boat. Don't tip the boat over. I then make a coffee and go down to the basement, where I don the podcasting vest. 
This fest comes from the podcast Tell Em Steve Dave and their fans. It's part of the legend of that show, a joke that turned into reality. Not the only time it's happened for them, actually. But when I'm sitting in front of the mic and the anxiety of whether or not I'm doing something cool or creative or am I just adding more noise into the ether, when I fumble with my words or I've spent too much time with a script, this vest is my protection. It reminds me of my family and friends that endure and celebrate my crazy ambitions and dreams. I feel the love of podcasting, of those that love listening to podcasts, more than any negative thought. It's funny, as soon as the vest goes on, I think, so what? So what if I'm not the best? Yet, at least I'm chasing after something. I'm not just coming back to a place of unhappiness and thinking, well, I guess this is the best it's ever going to be. Why change? This fabric was just fabric until I believed. Which I'm just now learning is a core belief to the modern magic user. That your will defines the world around you. To become an elite athlete, you have to get up early, work on your skills consistently, eat properly. Your life is your work and... Talent without passion is nothing. You have to believe you are the best. The strength of your will on the puck or ball or ski hill will define your success. To appease the gods in your head, you have to perform the ritual to know that they're on your side. I wonder with people that have trained their entire lives to compete, that have mastered their body and mind, what kind of powerful magics could they perform? I mean, aside from the near superhuman strength, agility, and speed they already have from life training, but, you know. This has been a really fun episode to write and record, and I hope to follow this up with uh, another episode down the road with a deeper look into the possible conspiracies and occult ties to the people that run the National Leagues. What are your rituals? Do you have a good luck charm? Have you ever been cursed with bad luck? Message me on Facebook on the Bearded and Board group or email me at beardedandboard at gmail.com and tell me about it. Thank you to Jack Luna, Dark Topic, and all of the lunatics for giving me a lesson. Hey Jack, sorry about any shade I threw towards the Leafs. It's just where the fact-based evidence pointed me. Thank you, Anne, for your help with the script. Thank you, Richard Tower, for the use of your photo and the cover image. Thank you, listeners. And don't forget to owl at the moon. Hoot hoot. <laughs> <laughs>